tuned into episode 4.12 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by TAS by MND, an avalanche of solutions. And our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing, drink beer outside, with additional support from Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Welcome back to the show, everybody. If you don't know, the way that I record and produce this show is I usually go on the road in October and November, somewhere somewhere in there and during the fall months, and I gather all of the content for the show. So I do interviews. Uh, this last fall, I rolled through Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and Bozeman, Montana, and gathered a bunch of content. And then, of course, other interviews come up throughout my travels the rest of the year. And uh, I, I gather all that content. I put it in the in the Avalanche Hour podcast vault. And then I release the episodes twice a month on the 1st and the 15th of every month, starting in October, and I run them until I run out of episodes, essentially. Um, one of the hardest parts of doing this podcast is sitting on so much great content and so I have quite a few interviews left over in the vault right now um, and I think it's worthwhile to maybe release more than two a month for the next couple months during the the spring springtime shred fest um, coming up in the lineup just so you guys know what's coming down the line here is uh Eric Knopf is going to be probably the next episode. Doug Workman, Jordy Hendricks, Kevin Hammonds, Don Bachman, Susan Purvis, Alex Marienthal, Andrew Schauer, Doug Richmond, and Jerry Johnson. So if any of those folks are listening and wondering why their podcast interview hasn't been aired yet, um, it will be coming out soon. So... Uh, keep listening, and, and I have a feeling that we'll be running all the way into June or July this year. What else is on the list here to talk about? Triple A or A3, the American Avalanche Association. If you haven't already become a member and you're listening to this podcast, come on. Come on, folks. It's time. Not only will you get the amazing Avalanche Review publication in your mailbox four times a year. You'll also have um, access to professional employment listings, and it's really just the backbone of the community. Okay, so if you're interested in snow and avalanches, it's time to become an A3 member. You can go to www.americanavalancheassociation.org and sign up to become a member. There are a couple different member levels, and you can pick what would be most appropriate for yourself Today's episode, we highlight an interview from Greg Epstein. Greg has worn many hats over the years. He's been an extreme skier, photographer, videographer, producer of TGR films, and now the Teton County Commissioner. We talk about his upbringing in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and in his career as a skier. And he then talks a bit about some of the safety and training aspects of what goes into a TGR film. You know, it's 
way different being out in the backcountry with a production crew than it is with your friends just recreating in the backcountry. So we talk about a bit of, we talk a bit about what goes into that and how that's evolved uh, over the years for Teton Gravity Research. And finally, kind of the highlight of the interview is Greg talks about an avalanche accident that he was involved in in March of 2014 in Granite Canyon, just adjacent to Jackson Hole Mountain Resort. So we talk about the accident and then um, he reflects on some some things that he thought went well and some things that they could have done better um, in just assessing, assessing the hazard in the terrain that day. So without further ado, here we go with Greg Epstein. All right, welcome to the show, Greg. Thanks for making the time. Absolutely, thanks for having me. Why don't you run down an introduction of yourself, your background, some of your past and present roles. Um, describe what it was like growing up here in, in beautiful Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Sure. Well, I guess, you know, starting from the beginning, um, I, I would say that I was lucky to have been able to be born here and raised in Jackson Hole. But as a kid, you really didn't, you don't know what you have. You don't know how special of a place. You have no perspective, so you don't know. So I really didn't understand um, what Jackson Hole meant until probably freshman, you know, probably sophomore, even junior year of college. Now I'd been gone for a couple of years. I was living down in Salt Lake City, going to University of Utah. I was skiing a bunch, skiing backcountry, skiing at a handful of the resorts down in Utah. Um, I just really realized then that Jackson was a pretty special place and that what I grew up being able to do, you know, every day or on the weekends with my family was pretty amazing and that the access was pretty amazing and that my folks were just willing to get out and, and do stuff. You know, they weren't the kind of sit on the couch sort of people. They were, all right, what are we going to do this weekend? I mean, they were taking my brother and I camping when we were infants and canoe camping when we were infants and doing that sort of thing and getting us out, you know, in the snow and whatever the elements at a pretty early age. So I feel um, just that upbringing was sort of started to mold my thinking and sort of what I wanted to do as a young adult. And now I'm middle-aged 48, <laughs> but, and, and now I have a daughter too. So what, you know, kind of how I want to um, show her the world. So very lucky to be able to grow up here and now living in Jackson Hole in 2019 it, it's it's crazy i mean this place is so on the map and everybody wants to be in Jackson Hole or have access to Jackson Hole or, or be able to um just live that sort of lifestyle of uh close access to the to the amazing public lands and things that we have here um, and the activities that go along with it. So I feel super fortunate. Um, I grew up ski racing. I was on the Jackson Hole Ski Club from a pretty young age all the way through high school. When I graduated high school, again, as I mentioned, I went to University of Utah down in Salt Lake. They had a pretty robust ski team. There was not, I was a decent ski racer, but not the upper echelon that was going to 
be be able to be on the University of Utah ski team, a lot of Europeans and um, even people that were probably on the U.S. ski team or close to being on the U.S. ski team. Anyway, I didn't really have an interest in ski racing after high school. I wanted to really just embed myself in the college experience, but going to school in Salt Lake, I don't know, there's like 11 or 12 ski areas right there, easy bus, bus access from the campus up into the mountains. So I started to, I formed a good, pretty solid group of, group of friends at, at school and we just started exploring the mountains in Utah. And it was, you know, interesting. I, you know, we're young. I mean, I'm 18, 19 years old. You're, you know, a little bit about backcountry safety, not that much. Um, you're surrounded maybe by some other people who have maybe had experiences in the backcountry that weren't so positive. Kind of thinking about it, I remember I probably was 19 buying my first peeps, getting my first backpack, but not necessarily knowing totally how to use everything. And I don't think that at that point, I mean, this, we're talking the late eighties, early nineties, the access to knowledge and the access to education didn't necessarily exist. It wasn't that accessible to the normal people. I guess if you were a ski patrol or a guide or something like that, there was probably some sort of formal class you could take, but for the layman, probably not a lot. Anyway, you know, we just started, we started playing around in the backcountry a little bit. Um, just my buddies and I, and, you know, I had this ski racing background, so I was technically and able to ski most things. And I, you know, I would say probably young, when we were young, we probably dodged a lot of bullets in Utah, but I also feel like in the eighties or late eighties and nineties, and even into the early two thousands, the snowpack seemed more stable. And this is anecdotal mm -hmm. uh, because I would have to go back and look at all the avalanche data, especially in Utah. So whatever's happening with the weather in the last six or eight years, and especially in the winter, I feel like with temperature, wild temperature swings and wild heating and cooling of, uh, of the snow and the snowpack, we've gotten these pretty crazy intense layers, you know, throughout the Intermountain and, you know, essentially throughout most places where people are trying to experience um, backcountry skiing and um, non-ski area skiing or, or just where ski areas generally exist. But, um, and, you know, it, it's that, that, that to me has especially, you know, and, I, and I'll take a step backward into more of my background in a minute, but mm -hmm. I feel like because of these wild swings, you just have to be so much more on your toes. And I, you know, referring back to when I was like 18 or 19 or 20, I just didn't feel, you know, avalanches happen in Utah. You'd hear about them. And as I got into my mid twenties, you know, you'd hear early season people getting, um, wiped out or getting slids here and there, and then maybe an avalanche here or there. But I feel like now that's happening all the time. And I, you know, it might be, I think it's partially the weather. I also think that there's a lot more people out in the backcountry, out in places where it, it, 
the it's not being controlled. Sure. Um, anyway, go, going back into in sort of my evolution of skiing after college, I then did a short stint in Boulder, Colorado, um, doing going to grad school, but then moved back to Park City, Utah. I was in college near the end of college. I started befriending a lot of um, other kids or young adults who were ex ski racers, but were moving into the pro ski world, uh, world extreme skiing championships, things like that. Um, Brant Walls, Jeremy Nobis, a um, couple of my buddies that were filmers like Rob Bruce, um, Shane McConkey, uh, and you know, so I was just around these guys, and we had a you know, so as I started to evolve living in Park City, there was kind of this little uh hub of pretty high level skiers. Um, in 1996, I think I blew my knee out. I did, I blew my knee out in 1996. I was supposed to go to New Zealand that summer, um, blew my knee out that spring before skiing in park city. And so that kind of shifted what I was doing and I got into photography. So for about 10 years from about 1997 ish to about 2010, I was shooting photos, um, professionally, mostly skiing, a lot of outdoor lifestyle, things like that. Um, and that sort of introduced me to this, the next level of backcountry skiing. Um, I don't like to call it extreme skiing, but free skiing. Um, so through these high level skiers, you know, Bram Moles was the 1997 world extreme skiing champion, Jeremy Nobis, fresh off the U S ski team, all of a sudden, you know, as the, the star of the TGR films, um, taking, free skiing to the next level, essentially in, in, in Alaska and, and things like that. Um, and I was fortunate enough to kind of come along for the ride. Uh, and that's when I was first introduced to Teton Gravity Research. Um, I think they started in 1996 or 97 as well. I remember being up in Alaska and then they asked me and said, hey, do you want to come shoot photos for us? one or two of the days that we were in Valdez. I think it was the same year Brandt had won the world extreme skiing championships. And, uh, sure. Yeah. Went out there and here I am, you know, Jeremy Nobis, all of a sudden there, here's Jeremy Jones. I think he's 19 or something like that or 20. Um, Adam Hostetter, Kent Kreitler, Brandt, Rick Armstrong. So, I mean, here's all these ski heroes, um, at, of the time. And, so, you know, pretty, but I was pretty green. I mean, here I am dropping, jumping into a helicopter in Alaska. It's my first trip to Alaska, Valdez, this whole thing. And it's just kind of all coming at us. But that was, you know, the, the fringe of the Wild West. I mean, you know, Coombs started Valdez Heli Guides, I believe, in 92 or 93. And, you know, here it is, 97. So there's been a four or five year span of, of a, a lot of exploration and just people kind of, you know, sitting on the edge of their seat going for it. Um, it was pretty, it was a cool time, but, uh, I would say that it probably wasn't the safest time. Mm. I think we were, everybody was just in it for the moment. And fortunately there weren't a lot of big accidents or anything like that. 
But as TGR evolved, and so I kind of did some stuff with TGR from 97 to, um, you know, the early 2000s, I moved from Park City in 1999 back to Jackson, so back home, and uh, started shooting regularly with TGR. Now that I was living in Jackson Hole, they're based out of Jackson Hole, I uh, was shooting with them regularly. And at the same time, I believe in about um the TGR had sort of recognized that they needed to up their safety game and fortunately there was one uh guide up at uh Valdez Heli Guides named Jim Conway who was doing a lot of the the high level recon and sort of high level guiding slash consulting early on for TGR as they were exploring all these places in um up in Alaska and he sort of took it upon himself to develop, start to develop this next level safety program. He, he knew that our crews, the TGR crews were going out into these remote places. Sure. We had helicopters at the time, but you know, and we have high level athletes are basically just pointing at different faces or different terrain and saying, okay, I want to go do that. But there wasn't, there wasn't this cohesive ability for the entire team to be able to come together on a rescue that that didn't exist yet. And so he took it upon himself to start to create a program that dealt with looking at dealt with looking at snow safety, um, looking at the red flags uh, of going out on any given day, um, first aid, um, and just sort of the process of a, of a solid rescue. And so the first couple of years, I remember being up in Alaska, uh, it's probably 2000, 2001, somewhere in there. Um, and we started going out and he, we would start, we were doing beacon tests and we were doing, um, digging pits and we were just, just doing all the basic snow safety stuff that I just don't feel like the classes like the level ones and the level two, I mean, the level ones they were, you know, Don Sheriff and, uh, you know, a bunch of avalanche sort of gurus like that were starting to teach those classes in the nineties, but they still just, they weren't that accessible to most of the general public. And it was a different application for your athletes, right? It was, it's a completely different application for your athletes and for production crew. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm a photographer. I might be across the way on a different ridge or I might be this, you know, somewhere else. And, you know, being able to assess if, if an athlete falls or gets slid or gets injured, you know, how does the team operate? And so this is what Jim Conway worked on to sort of bring, bring together this cohesive process and communication style that allowed us to be able to deal with emergency situations at a very high level. So Jim ran this program all the way up until like 2010 or 11, 2011, I believe, um, at a very high level, you know, all over the world. I mean, really only a handful of TGR athletes ever got seriously injured and, you know, probably wasn't a lot about getting slid. Mm -hmm more about just terrain choices, things like that, just part of the game. 
And then in 2000, so then I had been working with TGR as a photographer up until about 2008 or nine, then other things were going on in my life. So I kind of backed off. But then in 2000, end of 2010, I got the opportunity to become the producer of the ski films, which eventually led, in, led to me becoming the head of production of TGR for from 2000, end of 2010 to spring of 2017. And at that point, Jim decided he wanted to retire. It was becoming too stressful. The level at which these athletes are looking at the mountains and their approach was just, it was becoming too much for him. And he was getting older. I mean, I think he was in his mid-50s at the time and, you know, hanging out with all these young kids and whatnot. Anyway, so Jim decided to take a back seat and he was still giving some consulting and things like that. But um we then handed off the reins to um, a guy named Kent Sheeler, who basically he cut his teeth in Haines, Alaska, you know, from about the, the early mid-ish 2000s up until he's, you know, through the 2000, you know, 2010, 15 or 16, something like that. But anyway, he was doing, a, but he ended up doing a lot of work solely for TGR. But we brought him on then to sort of take our um, safety program, which at this point had been, um, termed IPRW international pro riders workshop. Um, and so every year we would bring together our entire crew, all the athletes. And then we, we even evolved it to athletes riding like their main riding partners, wherever they lived, you could bring your riding partner with you as well. And we just started evolving it. We evolved it away from just heli-based to snowmobile-based to backcountry-based to um, super high-level um, mountaineering-based. Uh, we brought in guides from Exum, like Zahan Villamoria, uh, and using their techniques to assess snow at high elevation where you're not going to be able to dig a pit. You're just kind of looking at settlement and sun exposure and things like that. And we really evolved the program um, up until I left in 2017. And so, and I'm not quite sure what's going on now, but uh, I, I'm, I'm certain it's at a very high level and I'm sure they're evolving it here and there. But, uh, you know, we got into, everybody was learning how to tie different knots for, you know, for, you know, their knot skills for rescues and for repelling and things like that. Everybody was taking advanced first aid. No, not just your basic first aid anymore, but advanced first aid. People were um, getting, actually some of the athletes were now teachers, you know, so they were passing on their experience and, you know, teaching level ones and level twos at the, at this um, kind of workshop. sort of a mentorship within the athlete community. Huh? Yep. Mentorship within the athlete community, but also, you know, with the production teams mm -hmm. as well. So we were starting to master, you know, even um, the communication style was even becoming more honed, um, things like that. So we, we got to the, you know, it was getting to this level of that you felt safe or, you know, you felt confident in your ski partners every time you went out with somebody that had taken this workshop. Right. And so that sort of leads into my incident with a, 
the the slide I got in in March of 2014. Okay, before we dive into that, Greg, I got a couple of questions for you. Yep. So there must be, I mean, thinking about production projects in the mountains, there's a different acceptable level of risk mm-hmm. than your normal backcountry traveler. Would you agree? Absolutely. I think the accepted level of risk comes with the fact that most of the athletes, I mean, they're pro, they're pro skiers and snowboarders. They understand their level of risk and they also can do things within the terrain that the most normal skiers and even most good skiers can't do or just aren't willing to do. Right. So yes, there is that accepted level of risk that's higher. And so what's that like finding the balance of, of pushing it enough to get get a really good shot that's going to be seen around the world and backing off when it's when somebody has a gut feeling that it's time to back off. So the athletes always dictated um, what level of risk they were willing to push. Uh, production was there. We were ready. But it wasn't our job to say, oh, you need to go do that. Mm-hmm. You know, sure. Did we point? Did we have conversations about like, what about that? What about that? What about that? And have those conversations? Sure. But there's also, we, so that was one thing. And then typically, you know, if we showed up at a zone, a lot of times if it was new, we'd seen photos. So we're sort of looking at photos of these different zones, but then we had, we always had a progression. So, you know, if a team came in, we're not hitting the big stuff day one. You know, we're looking at aspects, digging pits, gathering data, doing research, um, and then it's the progression. Okay, let's start over here on this little mini sub sub ridge. Let's see how that feels. And just day by day, let's step it up. You know, let the athletes get their legs under them, get a feel for the snow, get a feel for, you know, if do I hit a starting zone? Does it, do things move? Um but not just roll right into the big stuff that you see in a lot of the films. Um, so the, 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 that definitely was a big part of the program. And and I feel like that helped us be successful because if we weren't successful on the small stuff due to snowpack or conditions, then jumping in, it, you know, it's kept us from even stepping onto the big stuff. And so the, the, it just took that question you know, out of the picture at the time. But if the progression was working, then, okay, we can get onto the big stuff a couple days down the road once we've already done a little bit more research. I think this is a, that's a super transferable strategy for all backcountry travelers. Absolutely. Especially if you're someplace new that you are unfamiliar with. Absolutely. But here's the rub. For a lot of backcountry travelers, you're putting in massive efforts to get to places mm-hmm. you know you're not flying in on a heli or a plane you're strapping your skis on and you're skinning for hours sometimes days just to get to places so you get out there and you just feel like because you put this massive effort into getting somewhere that you have to do something big right and that's not necessarily true there's always another day yeah and just the experience of skinning out to someplace or making a huge ascent. I mean, that on its own can be pretty amazing. And, you know, you can take in a lot just by doing that. 
But I, th- I feel like the mentality of, I don't know, now social media and these things, you know, you got to get the Instagram or you got to get the story. It's just, and it's almost not for your inner soul anymore. It's to show other people what you're doing. Right. And I mean, sure, that's what the ski films do. But here's this select group of elite athletes, skiers and snowboarders who are well-trained and that's all they do. And they've got safety all around them. They've got, they understand safety. The production crew understands safety. We have um, guides and, and, and safety professionals on site. And yet then you have people going out there, it's just them and their buddy mm-hmm. and trying to transfer, translate the same thing. It's like that, that, it just it doesn't work sure at times so but at uh, a very basic level utilizing terrain progression no i so going back yes utilizing terrain progression i totally agree i just feel like people just get antsy sure and w- won't say well okay let's start over here on this little thing let's see what happens then let's progress up and and give themselves the time um and again i think a lot of it has to do with because some of it's just these huge efforts and so mm-hmm. you just want to go hit you know, the mother loves at some cost. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Well, Greg, let's kind of bring it back to Jackson here and talk a little bit about um, an incident you had in March of 2014 in, in Granite Canyon. Maybe you could start out and just kind of describe Granite Canyon. We don't want to give away any secrets. I've, no. I've heard from a lot of locals this week that people are really excited about the Icon Pass being um, having the village included there. So we don't want to give away any secrets, but just kind of describe the scene of, of Granite Canyon and the access and some of the terrain characteristics back there. It's, it's a magical place for sure. It's, it's definitely a magical place and it's real. I mean, it's got huge relief to two and a half thousand feet of relief, depending on where you're skiing. Um, good pitch, good terrain, but you've got to be on your game and it's it's not a place for the amateur skier it's not a place for even a decent skier who doesn't have any backcountry experience um additionally you have to sidestep your way out or if you're a snowboarder essentially walk out which is not that easy so and you know that's it's a couple miles of sidestepping or um, walking around the ski area to get out. But when it's good, it's really good. And it's all north facing or mostly north facing, very, a lot of trees and just a lot of fun, playful terrain. Um, shoot after shoot after shoot, you know, it's probably a couple miles of just unlimited playful terrain so and it's super fun and it because it's north facing it doesn't see the light of day for most of the winter i mean maybe like around march 15th or so and maybe a little earlier than that it start little bits of flecks of light start piercing through the trees and start hitting the tops little ridges and stuff like that but um that's about all i'm going to say about what granite canyon is i um the day that i got slid it was my, it was the second our second run back there the, the day before it was a super sunny beautiful um springish day 
we skied the front side of the mountain all day. It was kind of, you know, it was a pretty fun posse of friends. It was sort of that spring slushy, sloppy down low, but up high, just kind of soft and very carvable and edgy and, and super fun. Um, but then the next day it was cloudy. So the front of the mountain was uh, just coral reef, just all frozen, refrozen. And I think it had snowed a tiny bit and on the back and granted it snowed probably uh, six or eight inches. Mm -hmm. And that that's typical, you know, the front of the mountain may get an inch or two, the back of the mountain, it's hard to say sometimes storms just get caught up that Canyon. And sure. you, so it's hard to translate, but typically more snow snows it snows a little more in granite canyon um so you know because it was scratchy and not that good at skiing on the front we said hey, this is a perfect opportunity let's let's go take a peek back in granite so it was myself and a couple one or two local guys and then a couple friends from out of town that um all had had some affiliation with tgr at some point mm -hmm. so uh well the out-of-town guys had a couple of the local friends, not as much, but anyway. And so what was, Greg, maybe you could talk just briefly about the seasonal snowpack. Were you guys dealing with any big instabilities or, um, or were you kind of weathered out for the... 2014 wasn't, I think earlier in the season, it had been a little bit unpredictable. But as we got into end of February, March, things started to consolidate a little bit more mm -hmm. and just a little bit more comfortable poking around. So, I mean, I had an idea as to what this snowpack was sort of doing just from being back there mm -hmm. uh, and had a, you know, and, and, I, and I know I've skied back there enough that I sort of know where the terrain, train traps are and these sorts of things. So you know, felt pretty comfortable anyway. So we skied a, uh, a first run, um, just a little, I wouldn't say more conservative, but a little bit, but you stay sort of on this Ridge and then you sort of drop into this oblique sort of shoot and, uh, you know, just perfect blower hmm. snow, no, nothing, uh, nothing moving, um, felt pretty solid. So we came back around, um, it was probably like one, 12, 12.30 or one o'clock. And one of my out of town buddies was like, you know, should we go and check out another one? I, you know, I was like, yeah. And I mean, it was definitely down at the base. We were, we were sitting like on the deck of the general store at the bottom of Jacksonville Mountain Resort. And um, I was like, yeah, it's kind of warm. I could feel that on the front side of the mountain, the ambient temperature was definitely a little warmer than that morning. But I was like, you know, it's, it's pretty much north. It's got its own sort of microclimate and granite. Okay, let's, we'll go check one more out. So we went back up to the top and we went a little further north than our first run. And it was a little bit more direct shot. And we dropped in. Well, so I, first of all, went into this very top part. So this is kind of a two section run and went where I got slid as the second section. So the top section, which I'll point to you is kind of, yeah, right up there. So it's pretty, it's kind of like an open little bit at the top. Then you kind of have to poke your way through these trees. Then it opens up. So I ski cut the top and I, or actually before that, I kind of did a hand pit mm -hmm. kind of felt, 
you know, and you could feel like there was some fresh snow on top of what felt fairly consolidated. Um, ski cut that, skied through the trees and ended up sort of at the top of this open, this open part right up here. And um, actually, you know what? We ski. I skied through, so I skied through all the way to here in the in that tree line. That so I, well, I skied through the top here, mm-hmm. and then I skied down, and I cut it. Nothing moved off this because this part's way steeper in mm-hmm. here in these trees, and then came popped out, and then skied all the way down to the to this right here. Mm-hmm. And then I, uh, my buddies came down. Everybody, nothing, nothing moving. I mean, it's just eight inches of just this sort of creamy, super perfect fast fun snow we're like shit this is good this is fun and um so i said okay guys you know we have the opportunity we can either go right which would put us into here or we can go left which puts us into into here and they're like oh yeah let's go check out left and um so i uh i um we get to the top of this chute Mm -hmm. we're like right up in here Mm mm-hmm it's actually, we were probably like, yeah, right up in. And um, so they're all standing on this ridge, like right up at the top of this ridge right here. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, I'm going to ski cut this and then we'll go. So I kind of ski cut across right here. And again, nothing moved. So, you know, I look behind me, ski cut, I look behind, and then I drop in my first turn. And as I'm making my second turn, I just see pop, 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 pop. And so it's like, down in here mm. was starting to pop or yeah like kind of right in here it was starting to pop and i was like uh-oh so you know i knew my island of safety was on this ridge right here that subridge to the left yeah that ridge yeah. to the left so i i was beeline and i saw it and i'm just like gunning just and i'm just cr- cresting this ridge and um big chunk of snow from behind just grabs the back of my skis and at that point i'm like shit i'm in this thing this is and it was moving super fast so it pulls me in backwards i'm just like okay backwards okay somehow i righted myself so my skis are facing back downhill and then i've got snow going up my goggles so somehow i pulled my goggles up over my onto my top of my hat and i'm like okay i have my airbag i'm like okay airbag i mean this literally probably all happened in like the 10 seconds mm-hmm. first 10 seconds i'm like pull the airbag poof that thing opens i'm like cool that worked and but this thing is just it's moving now i mean the thing it's probably going i'm guessing 50 55 60 miles i'm like i'm just flying skis are still on i'm just trying to gird it out i'm just holding myself in like this position can't see just being white roomed the whole time and then all of a sudden i feel this burning sensation down in my lower sort of abdomen on my right side i'm like "Uh oh i don't know what's going on there but you know this thing isn't stopping soon and then just i'm just holding on just white room and then poof i'm just it's just quiet and i'm just like oh god i could be i I, I could be done i don't know and i just had enough time to be like a i've skied this before like, I don't remember there being a huge cliff in here. And I, then I'm being like, but who knows? I don't know. So I'm out in the air and then bam, hit the ground. I'm like not unconscious. And then immediately after I hit the ground, I had landed in like this little grove of trees, which is kind of like right in here somewhere. Mm-hmm. 
and um or down in somewhere i hit the dog leg basically and kind of and um landed in this little grove of trees my ski hit a tree shattered my lower left or my lower right leg tip fib and i was just like so then i was just beat up i'm just like oh shit and then, but the thing's still going i'm still sliding down the hill like this thing's got to end soon i could feel this burning sensation in my um, lower abdomen um i'm just like okay no more and then i slowly feel it starting to slow down slow down and I ended up, it stopped. I ended up, I'm on the surface and immediately like first aid rescue just kicked in. I'm just like, okay, A, I've got two places that really hurt right now. So I first of all, just went into my pants with my glove on, whatever, and just was like checking my abdomen. Cause I thought maybe a stick or something had, that had impaled me go down into my lower abdomen, no blood. I'm like, okay, good. I'm not bleeding. I'm not going to bleed out there. Then I go down to my leg and I mean, as painful as it was, I just went down, pulled my pants up, just went up under my leg or under my pants on my leg and just ran my hand all over it. No blood. I'm like, okay, we're good there. So, you know, and I, I'm like facing 45 degrees down the hill, legs are up. I think I had one ski still on, one poles and another ski were gone. Um, and that, at that point I just started yelling to my buddies, call 911, call 911. And, you know, and granted, if you get too low, cell service goes away. Mm. So, you know, I'm just yelling, call 911. And so one of my buddies, you know, immediately when I got, um, caught in the slide, they all were just like, Doop. I mean, there, it was automatic. These guys are all, they're all pro. And they're just like, okay, it's time for rescue. It's time to go do a beacon search. So here they did. They came down and started okay. doing the beacon search. And, and you took the ride for what, 800? Uh, from feet, about up here feet. down past. And I don't know which side. I probably ended up on the left side of these trees, mm -hmm. the big trees. So down in, down in here somewhere, maybe past. Yeah, probably down in this. Probably like down in here. Right. Yeah. And you had radios or, or just kind of visual or uh, no, voice contact with them? Not none. I mean, it's, it's Granite Canyon. I mean, we, I never, you know, unless I was on a production, I right. never shot, you know, used radios. Yeah. I mean, it's just kind of like people just knew we, I skied with people who knew where they were going. Yeah, for sure. So I'm down. First guy does a pretty hasty beacon search. He, he comes down, comes to me. And I, and meanwhile, again, I'm just yelling, call 911 before, you know, before you get too low. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the whole team gets down there. I'm like, I'm pretty messed up. You know, I've definitely got a broken leg. I've got a lot of pain in my abdomen, but you know, let's case, okay, so let's get this rescue going. You know? So, and at that point I basically was like on the phone, calling the shots on my own rescue. I called dispatch. I said, this Greg Epstein, um, I just got slid back in granite. Um, you know, and I gave him basically, I said north of endless or north of mile long, excuse me. And, um, so that got the wheels in motion. Mm -hmm. Um, so ski patrol came took them a while because they were afraid of hang fire at this point 
coming in off the top. So they t it took them a while. And at the same time, the wheels were put in motion for search and rescue. So they're mobilizing. Uh, ski patrol gets down there. They get me all buttoned up. And, um, you know, so by the time for the first hour and a half or so that I was down there, the weather wasn't too, too bad. It was sunny and I was feeling okay. I mean, I was definitely in a lot of pain, but not too shocky. But then the weather changed and here's, it's, it's, uh, started snowing a little bit and it was getting windy. And I, you know, that's, I started getting worried because in 19, 97 I was it was on my birthday or right around it we were my buddy and I were heading up to Alta around in sometime in early mid-January and that heli they were doing a rescue and that heli crashed into the side of the mountain and killed everybody and all I could think about was collateral damage and I was like I don't want to be that rescue that puts you know, kills a bunch of other people. And, you know, I'm watching it snow and, I, and I'd been out in this sort of thing, you know, I'd been around helicopters enough to, to know the risks. Anyway, you know, that's search and rescue and ski patrol. I mean, that's what they do. That's mm -hmm. they put their lives out there. You know, we should all be thankful that these kind of people exist. And so ski patrol got me buttoned up. They had to then sort of lower me in a sked down to this tight little LZ. So the, the, the search and rescue, I think her name is Danica. She just put this thing in the tightest little, um, actually it wasn't Danica. It was, I, I can't remember anyway, into this little LZ, you know, and here's the rotors are almost hitting the snow on the uphill side. And so, you know, they had to swing me around and sort of get me in. And so, yeah, fortunately, they were able to heli me out. And um, that would have been a bumpy ride out. Oh, it would, been, would have been brutal in like a sled sort of situation right. out of the granite little goat path back out. Um, but, you know, fortunately, Teton County's got a very robust search and rescue and uh, EMS and ski patrol and their cooperation between all the different agencies is amazing. You know, the park is talking to search and rescue. Who's talking to ski patrol. Who's talking, you know, to dispatch. It's, 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 we're super lucky mm -hmm. in this community. Um, the way that the process works, uh, to, to help rescue people, especially because we have just different lands that are managed by different agencies. Sure. So very lucky there. Um, they plucked me out with a helicopter and, uh, yeah, I feel just super lucky that I'm still here five years later and able to talk about this and, you know, lots of lessons learned and also just knowing that life is fragile and it can be taken away from you like that. Right. So they flew you to the hospital. You ended up having a tib-fib fracture, almost compound, right? Like it was. Yeah. So kind of actually they skin. flew me to the, um, ranch parking lot where they put me mm -hmm. in an ambulance there and then okay then drove me to town um i had a tib fib fracture which yeah was super close to being compound i just happened to be wearing these pretty tight compression socks so kind of held things together um and then i had an open booked pelvis which was actually a worse injury but i didn't really realize that i even had a broken pelvis or an open book pelvis till probably about 
45 minutes after the avalanche, I was just like, man, things mm. are feeling real loose down here and just feeling just really weird. And st- I could start feeling some pain, like in my sacrum and stuff like that. And then realized, yeah, I've got, there's some injuries going on there too. And then I had a bunch of torn abdominal muscles and internally was losing a ton of blood and things like that. So, so there was some bleeding from the pelvis fracture. Yeah. Internally. Yeah. Yep. And probably my leg as well, sure. but mostly from my pelvis. Yeah. Um, so that, uh, that's where the, the road to re- recovery began <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, battling, uh, being, um, committed to recovery and to PT and to those things. It took me probably three and a half years on and off of working through those primary injuries, then through secondary, you know, weird overcompensation injuries and just, but just being super committed to um, going to PT and going to the gym and just slowly work and work and work until now we're five and a half years out and I'm feeling pretty solid, but I, I still, I mean, my life is about staying fit now. And also I mean, at at an age that you just can't let down, it'll catch up to you real quick. Sure. I, I like that you said that, um, the search and rescue efforts here are a well-oiled machine, but it's probably worth noting that it's not a guarantee of getting a rescue, you know, in, in Granite Canyon, the surrounding backcountry to the Jackson Hole Mountain Resort is, is real terrain, as you were saying, and it should be treated as complete backcountry. Oh, back Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, I would almost say that it's probably, when I think about mobilizing that search and rescue team that day and where the pilot put the heli down, you're probably better off putting the heli down somewhere in the the, the bigger cathedral of the Tetons, the mm. more wide open space than in granite. Sure. Granite's tight, but yeah, you're nobody is ever guaranteed a rescue. Um, depending on the weather, depending on the time of day, depending on the, a handful of other factors that we should all be thinking about when we're out there uh, on, on the level of risk that, that you want to choose because you are putting other people's lives at stake mm-hmm. to save your own life. And we should all be reviewing that in our heads when we're doing our risk calculations. Yeah, that's a really good point. So Greg, what are some other take-homes that, that you have from this incident, both both good and bad? I'd say take-homes, know your ski partners. That's my number one, always. You know, do your, do your go-to ski partners, can they save your life? You might be able to save their life, but can they save your life? And that's super important. And you need to have that conversation with your friends mm-hmm. or your ski partners. And it doesn't have to be skiing. It's mountaineering. It's mountain biking. It's, you know, all the fun activities that we like to do here in Teton County and in Northwest Wyoming, all of them come with some level of risk. And you need to just know who you're with to make sure that, you know, if things go south, that all of you can, you can rise above and, and help take care of the situation. So that's super important. Um, be prepared, you know, make sure you have the right gear. You know, every one of the guys I was with whipped out a Patagonia puffy. It's like, boom, zip, zip, zip. I need, you know, to help keep me warm. And uh, that was awesome. I mean, including myself. I mean, I had stuff, have food, have some water. I mean, just, just generally be prepared for worst case scenario. Mm-hmm. You don't, you're not planning on it, but it happens. So 
um, be prepared. And then on a person, probably more personal or more, you know, what was going on through my head that day. That second run was an aggressive terrain choice. I mean, it's 55 degrees ish around there. Um, there definitely had been some ambient heating on the front side of the mountain. Now, whether that translated to the back side of the mountain, I don't know, but maybe um, I happened to hit the perfect little pocket slash um, starting zone for that slide that day. I mean, everything above it was stable. Everything in the other run we did was stable. I just was unlucky and hit the wrong spot. But at the same time, had I said, you know what, the ambient temperature has gone up enough today to where I don't feel comfortable going back into that area again today, I would have saved myself the hassle of what I've had to deal with for the last five and a half years or whatever. Um, but we're human. Sure. And we make mistakes. Yeah. And fortunately, I'm here to be able to tell people about my stake, mistakes and hopefully they can learn from my mistakes. Yeah, right on. Well, we appreciate you sharing your story, Greg. Um, so, Greg, since your time at, at TGR, you've kind of taken a change in career paths, I guess you could say. And <laughs> you're now the, the Teton County County Commissioner, correct? I'm, I'm one of them. One so of there's them. five of us and I'm one of the county commissioners for Teton County. Um, I guess... After this incident, you know, I loved my job with Teton Gravity Research. It's ama It was amazing. It took me all over the world. I got to work with a lot of really amazing people, amazing athletes, um, just very driven individuals, really incredible. But I still felt like something was missing. Um, the community, when I got hurt, the outpouring of love and energy back towards me was incredible. I couldn't believe it. I, I You know, here I am. I'm dinged up, not going to die, but I was pretty beat up. But I mean, people brought food to my wife and I for, I think like six or seven weeks straight. And the number of people that came and visited and just, um, just the outpouring of love, it was really heart touching and amazing. And I think mm -hmm. it really helped me through those first like six or seven weeks of recovery when you're just laid out and a lot of pain and just trying to get through each day, having people come over and take your mind off of, um, that sort of convalescing period. So when I, you know, kind of handful of years later, you know, I was thinking about, well, wow, you know, the community came out for me. So I think it's an opportunity for me to give back to the community and growing up in Jackson, being born in Jackson, I, you know, I had a pretty solid history and understanding of a lot of the core issues that are, you know, Jackson and Teton County are dealing with um, currently and threw my hat in the ring and got elected <laughs> for, for, for good or for bad. I got elected <laughs> and uh, you know, so now I'm almost into my starting in January, my fourth year of my term. Okay. And uh, it's been super interesting. You know, I've, there's just so many niches in our community and so many different needs in our community that until you really kind of poke your head above the clouds and look around, you don't realize. Mm. And then you get involved and you get in it and you kind of, you learn about different aspects of the community, you know, different underserved populations or different needs. Um, and you really start to put together this 
grander picture of what a community really is. And so it's it's been educational. It's been frustrating. It's been um, there's been some good some good positive things have happened for the community since I've been on the commission as well. But yeah, so just continuing to try to plug away and put my um, put hopefully make the best decisions right. for the community based on um, the information and the that that I'm given and you know hopefully it's the right thing. What what would you say your most proud you know accomplishment? I'm sure it takes a team to do a lot of these things, but what would you say your most proud accomplishment within that realm has been? Um, yeah, it does take a team. I'd say right now the commission, the board I'm working with right now, we're high super high functioning board, a lot of really great people, very thoughtful. Um, and I think we have a lot of very positive community-oriented conversations that we're t- trying to drive towards good outcomes and good and solid solutions for the greater community. Uh, you know, government works in such funny ways that I don't think I have anything specific, but I can say that I'm working in a positive fashion f- for my community that's hopefully going to keep people's improve people's quality of lives lives or at least keep them at a, at, a, at a good quality of life yeah sounds solid that's great well greg i appreciate your time and i appreciate you coming out and sharing your story of of your experiences in the backcountry not only with teton gravity research and high functioning athlete team but also uh the avalanche that you're involved with in Granite Canyon in March of 2014. I think there's some great lessons in there and I think we all need to be a little bit more open as you have been with um, sharing our stories. So this is what this podcast was started for and it's not always the the route that I take with interview guests, but I appreciate your, your telling your story. Thank you, Well, I appreciate you having me on. All right, cheers. Cheers, take care. everybody thanks for listening appreciate you don't forget to follow us on the socials we are at the avalanche hour podcast on instagram and facebook and check out the website www.theavalanchehour.com reach out with feedback or questions i have to admit i've been slacking on responses to some emails lately due to just busy travel and work schedules i apologize but i'll get on it soon if you enjoy the show tell a friend about it if you feel like going above and beyond that please rate and review the show it does really help our artwork was by mike t you demand t our music today was by one of my favorite artists that i found at freemusicarchive.com and that's broke for free we've highlighted them in the past um, but the tracks today were Juparo and feel good instrumental until next time Stay tuned, stay safe, wash your hands, and keep having fun out there. Cheers. Cheers.